Welcome back to Word and Table, a bi-weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I'm here as usual with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Good to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Uh, today, Stephen, um, so I've got my uh, volume of the Apostolic Fathers here, and uh, the Apostolic Fathers are really interesting to me because they're people who either knew the Apostles or knew someone who knew the Apostles, uh, but there's one letter in here that doesn't really seem to fit that description, and it's the letter to Diognetus. Diognetus, right. Diognetus, right. Diognetus, mm-hmm. yes, um, and it doesn't really... So first of all, I I don't Dionysus is not one of the apostles. No, correct? No. <laughs> all right, I'm correct about that. Absolutely correct. <laughs> um, it's also really short, so you can uh, read over it pretty quickly. But maybe you could tell me um, what what's this letter? Where does it come from? How does it fit into these writings? Well, despite its title, which was given to it in the 16th century, it's not a letter at all. Oh, there we it's go. answering okay. some questions. Uh, it's set up in the form, uh, you know, of answers to questions posed by by the way they Diognetus, Diognetus rather. What that actually means is Greek is child of Zeus. So it's sort of like a Greek version of every man. <laughs> okay. So there probably is no, there certainly is no one named Diognetus. So this is kind of a, um, just a, a, an apologetic to, just a, just kind of an amalgam of That's paganism. Right. Actually, okay. rather than the apostolic fathers, what this really belongs to is to the, the apologists, you know, the, the, the in the, by the second century and things, in the end of the second century, what happened? Christianity was at the place where people were, and you're getting more educated people were becoming Christians as well. They felt a need to give an, a persuasive response to the world for the faith they held, you okay. know, a reason for the hope that is in us. And so it really fits much more nicely with the, uh, the apologists than it does with the apostolic fathers. But what happens, we don't have a collection of apologists per se. They're long enough. They typically are published on their own. Uh, so this letter, which is truly engaging, it's really well written. It reads well. You know, even for a modern, it, it, we'll read some selections today. It's a really great document. Uh, was so popular, and it would, it's too short to publish by itself. It's something you could read in 10 minutes if you're a slow reader. Um, <laughs> so it's a, but it's a beautiful document. Actually, in Greek, it's, it's stunning. It's some of the best Greek you'll find. It's, it's clearly the person was a professional writer okay. uh, who did this. But it's basically put in the form of a guy asks quite his pagan friend, here are th- Eight questions you ask about us. Okay, so this is kind of like a response to John Q. Pagan or yes, something. Yes, <laughs> response to John uh, John it. Q. Pagan, right. And uh, and it's most famous for two paragraphs we'll talk about in a little bit if we have time today, is about the place of Christians in the world, which I think is interesting given that we're having some of those questions today in a sort of post-Christian world in many places. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, so was it written, though, at about the same time as the other Apostolic Fathers? Uh, no. We, we, okay. Pretty much the consensus now, for a long time people debated when, but pretty much the consensus is the last decade of the second century. A few things are, first of all, Christianity is, is widespread. So that's the first thing it's assumed. It's everywhere. Christianity is mm-hmm. everywhere. Uh, the persecution, the original persecutions were pretty hit or miss. It was sort of like pogroms with Jews in Eastern Europe. In the Russian times, you know, what would happen, they'd have these occasional riots that would break, deadly riots. Yeah. But it wasn't all the time. Yeah. And in some ways, that made it more horrible. Mm-hmm. Out of nowhere, these, these would come up. But we're now at a time where we're talking about more systematic, official persecutions. Not okay. just angry neighbors, but angry government officials. Okay. So we have yeah. that. And again, we have more educated individuals wanting more of a 
a, an educated, an intellectual's response okay. yeah. to, to challenges to the faith. We have no idea who the author is, which means it's been sort of a, almost like a parlor game, I suppose, in yeah. patristics. <laughs> During the years, uh, for a long time, people thought it may be Justin Martyr, mm-hmm. uh, because actually once the letter was found in a collection, you know, later on somehow, with Justin Martyr manuscripts, but um, the actually the style that makes it extremely unlikely. It mm-hmm. just doesn't seem like him uh, at all. Some people more recently have talked about Quadratus, who was an apologist, you know, in the in the church, but none of them are very persuasive. Okay, so like if you have the uh, time on your hands to become a patristic exp- expert, you too can try and discover the author of the letter to Diagnosis. That's, uh, that's right. It's, 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 op- it's open there. We should set up a uh, we should set up a website. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's an open uh, job opening. Nice. <laughs> okay, okay, great. So maybe, probably not Justin Martyr, but uh, we're not entirely sure at this point. So we've talked about how this is a an a, this is an apology uh, addressed to kind of you know John Q. Pagan. So what or are the it qu- might even be a preliminary catechesis? Oh, okay. Because one thing most apologies are saying: stop beating up on us. You know, like a Justin Martyr saying this is unfair, etc. This one actually makes a, a real invitation at the end, sort of an altar call. Hmm. Okay. So it might have been, it takes the form of an apology, certainly answers the questions they were raising, but it does so in a more um, conversion type of um, feel okay. Okay. at the end. Yeah, so it's, not, so it's not just kind of an intellectual exercise. It yeah, it's, might it's, call, it's a call for action more yeah. than stop beating us up. Okay, got it, mm-hmm. got it. So what, is, what are the questions that they respond to? I'm, I'm, I'm eager oh, yeah. to hear. Well, yeah. who is this Christian God? Uh, what's the relationship with Christians of the world around them? Uh, that's uh, the best-known passages we'll talk about are from here. They're mm-hmm. really there's nothing quite like these passages. You know what? How do they fit in? You know, in this ancient world where most people aren't, how do Christians fit into the world? And how are Christians able to disdain the world and despise death? The thing that really amazed people in the ancient world was martyrdom. Mm-hmm. Martyrdom means witness from Greek. You know, martyr witness in Greek, and it means people would say, "Wow, they've got to really believe this. They're willing to die for this, and they mm-hmm. die happy." Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are given the out at the last minute. You can get out of this. Just leave. Leave the faith. And they wouldn't. So people are amazed. What, what, what is it that allows Christians to reach this place? Yeah. Some people say, I want what they've got. Uh, why do Christians reject the pagan gods? Remember a classic case in the ancient world was, well, you can have, why can't you join with all the other gods? Why can't you just be more um, diverse? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and or why, why don't you follow Jewish practice? You know, after yeah. all, you know, why, why do you not follow Jewish practice? Same God here, yeah. Uh, why do Christians love one another so much? You know, mm-hmm. it's obvious they, took, they had real concern and care for one another. How could that be? You know, people looking for community, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, for example, with, the, uh, uh, with Mormons, a lot of people have been impressed with uh, Mormons by the, their strong community. Mm-hmm. So they were mm-hmm. by the community ties. And why did God wait so long to reveal Christianity? Yeah, that's definitely one I've heard before. It's yeah, like you know, what, what's going on here? Yeah, what, what was yeah, the, yeah. Why did you just get around to it in our time? All other religions were ancient. Sure, sure, yeah. And one of the things about Christianity, it seemed newfangled. You know, gee, within living memory or two or three generations, there was no such thing. Judaism goes back forever. The, the gods go back forever. Where, why, why now? Sure, if Jesus is really the guy, then why didn't, why didn't we start with him? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Okay. What was God waiting for? Great. Okay, well, so uh, you know, I I know you, Stephen, and I know that you're you you're you're never going to present a a, a text or something to us without giving us its basic uh, structure and outline before we get into it. I'm so, found out. So <laughs> so what's the so give us the outline of this letter? Well, the first four paragraphs 
uh, basically, he raised the first question. Raises here's the questions. You know, basically, here are some things you've asked me to address. So mm-hmm. let me talk about them. And he starts out by talking why what why paganism is fallacious. You know, why it doesn't make any sense. It's typically the Old Testament arguments about idolatry. Yeah. Saying so doesn't strike you as odd. You have to have guards. For example, this is one of the arguments. You have to have guards protecting those statues. If they're gods, why do they need you to protect them? Mm-hmm. Those kind of things are just you know wood. They say it can be used for one purpose another. Uh, when it comes to Judaism, arguing the formalism. Uh, you know the sort of the Pharisaic type of form. You know, there's, you know, reducing it to things we do. Yeah, as uh, as you would see it. It's interesting here, showing about the time, that earlier on when we talk about Jews in the faith, it's normally in the context of us as a. We look upon them as us. You know, we're we're within the Jewish family. Here, they're clearly looked upon as outsiders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, that really shows that's a change. So that's so a shift. That's normally, happened. it's the, the, like we see in Paul's epistles. It's about Judaizing. Right, it's right. about people who are Christians, but take, taking elements of Judaism into their Christianity. Here, it's talked about as a rival religion. Okay, okay. So that that split is really that been split has occurred. We're not talking about Jews saying should we circumcise? Should we? You know, we're talking about there's another religion out here, mm-hmm, Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have five and six are those amazing paragraphs, and we'll, we'll quote from them uh, uh, on the place of Christians in the world. Where, what place do they play in this world where they're such a minority, and yet they're everywhere? What, what, what role do they play? Yeah. I will talk, then he has a brief catechesis, sort of summarizes. Who's this God of the Christians? It talks about, you know, uh, Jesus and what he did for us. And then uh, 10 to 12, those par- 10, there are only 12 paragraphs in the, the whole document, are a final exhortation, basically, the altar call. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, oh, man, that warms my, my Baptist heart. Oh, I mean. amen. <laughs> Tell her, brother. So uh, tell me about, is, do, we, do we still have this letter? Like, well, can we amazing. go see it in a museum somewhere? Until relatively recently, that was true. There was a single manuscript, and it has really interesting history. I mean, it's like something out of uh, like a bad um, uh, a Netflix program. <laughs> what it had is it was purchased by there was this Italian cleric who was in Constantinople, you know, sort of doing the souvenir shops, as it were, and he found this manuscript hmm. in the 1430s, and he bought it. And he brought it back, and he sold it to, uh, to a higher churchman who had money, and he took it with him when he was transferred to Basel in Switzerland. And then when he died, he left it to the Dominicans and Cistercians of Basel. Uh, Germans, they needed cash, so a German scholar bought it from them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he gave it to a library of a monastery in Alsace. You know, that's that, that borderland between Near Germany France. and France. Yeah. that has gone back and forth. Now mm-hmm. it's in France. And uh, then what happened is the, the monastery gave the, the, um, uh, gave the manuscript to the Strasbourg Library. And that brings us to 1870 with the Franco-Prussian War. Oh, no. They bombarded Strasbourg. One of the, there are two great disasters. In that war, the great library disaster was the Strasbourg Library, one of the great libraries yeah. that caught fire. Oh, no. Really? <laughs> and the, yes. the manuscript's in there. Like, similarly, the, there's the great Louvre. Uh, there's a li- library at the, um, um, at, at the, uh, uh, the Tuileries Library. Uh-huh. Uh, it was burned in 1870. Yeah. And the Liège Library in Belgium was one of the great libraries that was burned in the First World War. Oh, man. Oh, the fr- I've never cared about the Franco-Prussian War until now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just That's breaks terrible. your heart thinking yeah. it went up. But her, happily for us is, you know, sometimes manuscripts sit and no one's done anything with them. They're sort of lost. But here we have really good people did all the critical work. So we had some good critical work done. Okay, well, that was going to be my next question, is that, you know, how do we know that what we have now, the text we have now is the same as the one that's lost? Well, we had a man named Henri Estienne in 1592 
he actually gave the title Letter to Dionetus, even though it's not a letter. Mm -hmm. He gave it that title, but he did the first critical edition. Got it. He did a very careful edition, and he was followed in 1842 by Edouard Kunitz and in 1861 by Edouard Royce. And so we have really good critical work. I mean, the scholarship was done, and happily, and then so we had nice, good printed copies we could rely upon, and then we lost the manuscript. Okay, I see. So we at least had really good editions. So so someone Xeroxed this before uh, before it was lost, (laughs) so to speak. Pre-Xerox. Yeah, isn't that what Greek scholars do? They just pretty much Xerox it. I I, I should imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Alex. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, Anyway, so uh, let's get into the meat of the letter. I'm I'm super interested, uh, especially about the part... Stephen, can we focus on the part where he talks about Christians in the world? Oh, yeah. Because I think that um, that's just, that's got to be so relevant to us right now. So, yeah, let's let's get into it. Well, the first thing he says, like, we think, like, with Hasidic Jews, for example, very supremely orthodox types of Jews, one of many different types of orthodox Jews, not, they're not all Hasidic, but we think they wear special dress, and it's obvious you can't be around them and not realize that they belong to this special group. Right. He says Christians aren't at all distinguished that way from anybody else. Actually, they, they blend uh, in okay. deliberately. He says, for the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. Interesting. Okay. So he said they blend. Yeah. He yeah. said it's not their intent to separate themselves from their society. They do. They they behave like everybody. They speak the same language. Remember, Jews in Eastern Europe would speak a different language mm-hmm. and things. They speak the same language. They dress the same way. They live in the same neighborhoods. They do everything like other people do. So, so for this guy, Christian culture as it were is not this kind of hermetically sealed off thing out there it's in society no it's it's very much uh actually uh i remember once hearing a sermon that really impressed me he said you know the role of the church he says to be a boat Mm -hmm. but he said that that means a boat can't do any good if it's not in the water Mm. The trouble comes when the water gets in the boat. Oh, okay, okay. And that's a good yeah. way of looking at it. So yeah. The boat has to be in the water. See, the Christians are in the world. They're not trying to cut themselves off from the world. Yeah. But he goes on to say they do distinguish themselves, not by how they speak or how they dress, but they distinguish themselves by their attitude and their moral conduct. Hmm. Let me read what he says here. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has, has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and all the rest of the ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as the land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Remember the Roman custom where you could let your child, if you could just put it out. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it says they have a common table, but not a common bed. They had, okay. <laughs> so they're not sexually promiscuous. Not, not yeah. sexually promiscuous. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their lives on earth, but just as citizens of heaven. But they are citizens of heaven. Um... They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. He said, not only mm. do they obey the law, they do better than the law. Okay. They're yeah. not just s- adequate citizens. Yeah. They're better than regular citizens oh. as far as keeping the law. Interesting. Okay. So he said the big thing that separates them isn't this, the outward stuff like wearing badges or something. It's what separates their whole attitude seems different. Yeah. They're really engaged. Notice he says that they really are, even in strange lands, they're engaged, but they always know they're different in mm. the sense they realize... You know, this isn't their homeland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is. In the sense of being a good citizen, they're 
100% engaged, being good citizens, but they realize there's more. Right. So even though it says wherever they are, they treat it like their native land, like in Jeremiah where Jews were told, build houses, have families, you know, pray for the good of the country. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, they realize there's more. That sure. ultimately they're citizens of a better country. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So this is this is almost like a cultural anthropology of yes. Christians, I guess. It's it's really interesting. Then he says, likewise, Christians are seen to be different by the persecution they provoke and their response to the persecution. Here he, they draw actually on sort of semi quotes from Paul. Hmm. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They're put to death and restored to life. They're poor, yet they make many rich. They lack all things and yet abound in everything. They're dishonored, and yet they're very dishonored. They're glorified. They're evilly spoken of, and yet they're justified. They're reviled, and they bless. They're insulted, and they repay insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if given new life. They're assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Hmm. One of the, the classic things Christians would say in the apologetic literature was, you know, why don't, if we're doing evil deeds, why don't you prosecute for those evil deeds? Right. What's the Christian thing? We're, wouldn't you, if we're doing these evil deeds, why don't you prosecute for those evil? There are none. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. exactly what is your problem? Hmm, 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 man, yeah. Wow, that's 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 quite a message to just that the thing that marks our religion is uh, returning blessing for for curses and for that's a, that's a witness. Talk about martyr. That's a witness. Yeah, you know because you you can't fake that. Yeah, it's when people don't react naturally like this, react supernaturally, the natural response to being offended and hurt is at least have hurt feelings. Mm -hmm. These people are concerned for their enemies. Yeah. Think yeah. of Stephen when it's martyrdom in the New Testament, where he doesn't just grumble under his breath, well, I guess I have to forgive them. He says he shouts out with a loud voice, don't hold this against them. But then I think the best part is he talks about, so what is the true relationship of the Christians to the world? This is beautiful. He says, to sum all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body, and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body, and Christians dwell in the world that are yet not of the world. The invisible soul is guarded by the visible body, and Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness remains invisible. The flesh hates the soul and wars against it, though itself suffering no injury because it's prevented from enjoying pleasures. This world also hates the Christians, though in no wise injured, because they abjure pleasures. The soul loves the flesh that hates it and loves also the members. Christians likewise love those who hate them. The soul is imprisoned in the body, yet keeps together that very body. And Christians are confined in the world as in a prison, and yet they keep the, together the world. The immortal soul dwells in a mortal tabernacle, and Christians dwells as sojourners in corruptible bodies, looking for an incorruptible dwelling in the heavens. The soul, when but ill-provided with food and drink, becomes better. In like manner, Christians, though subjected to day-by-day by day to punishment, increase the more in number. God has assigned them this illustrious position, which it is unlawful for them, uh, unlawful for them to forsake. Hmm. I like that piece about Christians 
being in the world like the soul is in the body like there's a, i mean obviously that's the extended metaphor but there's yeah. wow there's a lot there you saw of the hatred is you know we when we look upon the soul as also our our conscious is our conscience yeah he says we sometimes get mad at our conscience. the body says i want to do this and the conscience, well, right. i really shouldn't yeah yeah it's yeah. sort of like that too in the world he said our role is we actually hold it together without your mind and your conscience you know you can't function but sometimes we hate that fact yeah 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 wow that's fascinating but it's it's but the the He's claiming basically that Christianity, it's still, it, it's not of the world, but it keeps it together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's its like the, the organizing principle of this. Without it, yeah. it falls apart. That's really fascinating. It's sort of like, you know, the, the famous Jewish belief that um, the ten righteous men, it's a Hasidic belief, is remember Abraham said, well, would you destroy the city if there were ten righteous there? Right, yeah. And so there's a tradition, sort of folklorish belief among Jews, and especially Hasidic Jews, that as long as there are 10 righteous men somewhere <laughs> in the world. That's as low as you can go. <laughs> the, the world is saved by those yeah. 10 righteous men. But in some ways, that, that idea, though, that Christians are that soul, you know, it's, it's their presence, God's hmm. presence in them yeah. that benefits the entire, everyone benefits from this. Right. It right. keeps everything going. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah, there's just, there's a there's a couple other things in there to, to, um, to pick out, I guess. Uh, but the, like the soul when ill, but ill provided with food and drink becomes better. They're talking it, about like for athletic athletes and things. Yeah. When, yeah. You're, when you're getting ready for a competition, we know that ironically asceticism in the form of, you know, when you're in training, uh-huh. you know, when basically you cut down, you, you know, try to get into shape, uh-huh. buff up. Uh, that we realize it actually has, it actually makes our bodies better. So that's really an athletic comparison. Right. So he's saying the same for us is, you know, when we're buffeted and things, actually, Christianity grows. Remember, Tertullian uh, famously says of Christians, he says the martyrs are the seed of the church. Yeah, yeah. Martyrs actually result in more Christians. Yeah. Not less. Got it. Yeah, and the, the I like the, especially the soul loves the flesh that hates it. Yes. That especially that, um, you're right, when I, when I, you know, my my body is frustrated by my will to do better in certain things say mm-hmm. like you know to eat better you know my body's like no don't do that i want this but at the same time by assenting to the will to to, to that will that my my the health of my body is actually improved so that that's our mind really wills what's really good for the body yeah yeah that's yeah. one of its benefits yeah that's a great um distinction to make Stephen, because i i you know there's a lot of going back and forth these days about what it means to be in the world and not of it, um, to be ready to uh, be despised by the world in various ways. Um, it can often be really easy to lose that original commission to actually love the world and to keep it together for, for all of that. So I think that, I think that metaphor really. Exactly. That's the, the heart, heart of, of the Christian message. Yeah. We, yeah. you know, you know, the Lord Jesus told us, he says, the father sent me, so I send you yeah. his heart for the world. We're not uh, circling the wagons. Uh, you know, the, one of the great metaphors Jesus says in Matthew 16, he says, you know, I'll build my rock, that church uh, on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Mm-hmm. But I think most of our readers, uh, rather listeners, uh, probably are aware of, but I bet there are some who might not, is they get the metaphor wrong. We have the idea like somehow we're being attacked and the gates will give way. But we say it says, you know, the gates will not prevail against it. Mm. The metaphors were on the attack. Yeah, we're the ones on the march. We're yeah. the ones on the mark that their 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 attempts to keep out the faith will be beaten down. Yeah, their yeah. gates. So it's not like we're we're huddled. You know, as we circled the wagons are huddling. It's quite the opposite. We're on the march. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so any 
it's one thing is we certainly want to draw close in community for strength and mutual encouragement, but our, our focus has to always be on the world in yeah. the sense like the boat. Yeah. I love that. Like, again, that, that preacher um, that I heard long ago, I've always loved that analogy. He says, well, the boat has to be in the water. Yeah. But it can't let the water get in the boat. Right. Like with some liberalism, some liberal church figured, you know, if we let the water get in the boat, we could actually get closer to the fish. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if the boat sinks, you know, we. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it sort of defeats the, <laughs> the the purpose of a boat. Sure. And then I guess you, I suppose you have it on the other side that it's like, well, better not even to embark. Like, you know, let's just stay on. Let's keep the boat on the shore and, and not get into all actually, the messy water. My experience <laughs> in life has been in the church. Uh-huh. Is churches die when they. When churches are on Christ's mission, they flourish. Mm. When churches are w- with Christ with a heart for the world, they flourish. When it becomes about them and not about the mission. When they're not doing Christ's work, when they're taking our, you know, when it's about our spirituality, our spiritual needs rather than the needs of the world, we dry up. So is there anything else in this letter before we close that are Oh, why did God, people probably ask, why did God wait so long? That question. Why did God wait so long? Remember, why, for Christianity. Why? Oh, yeah, for, for Jesus coming. Some yeah. people still have that question. Let me give the answer he gives. Yeah. He's basically saying so that we, we, we never would have believed. We, we might have thought we could get through it ourselves. We had to come to the point of realizing our helplessness so we could take the cure. Mm-hmm. It's what happens with a doctor. It's the idea that sometimes people have to get a certain point of sick to be willing to understand I really need a radical cure. Okay. okay. You know, no one likes the idea of having to go into chemo or something. Yeah. But, it's, you know, it's really hard. But you get to a point where, you know, it has to for the point because, oh, yeah. Finally, are persuaded. I've really got to do it for my. This is essential. Okay. So he describes it this way: As long as the former time endured, talking about the times God, you know, was putting up with sin. Mm. It seemed BC. <laughs> he permitted us to be borne along by unruly impulses, being drawn away by the desires of pleasure and various lusts. This was not that he at all delighted in our sins, but that he simply endured them. Not that he approved the time of working iniquity, which which then was, but that he sought to form a mind conscious of righteousness, so that being convinced in that time of our unworthiness of attaining life through our own works, it should now, through the kindness of God, be vouchsafed to us. And having made it manifest that in ourselves we're unable to enter into the kingdom of God, we might, through the power of God, be made able. Having therefore convinced us in the former time that our nature was unable to attain life, and having now revealed the Savior who is able to save even those things which it was formerly impossible to save, by both these facts he desired to lead us to trust in his kindness, to esteem him our nourisher, father, teacher, counselor, healer, our wisdom, light, honor, glory, power, and life, so that we should not be anxious concerning clothing and food. So he's saying we had to learn. It's sort of like this. Sometimes you don't know if you can trust somebody. Uh, a, f- a favorite saying I had in our family was, true friends are like stars. You can only see them at night. Mm, yeah, we don't really yeah. know who our friends are until we're in need. Sure, sure, sure. And so like this thing is because we got to see that we might never have known, how can I know I could trust in God? It's like uh, where Paul says, or John says, how do we know God loves us? It's while we were still sinners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That God died for us. And we say, wow. We might think, if, for example, we hadn't sinned, that, well, God is, quote, nice to us and loves us because we're good. right. When he still loves us, despite what we've done, then we can know how deep that love is. So he's saying basically God had to do this to show us that it's nothing we did or could do. Yeah. That it was completely him. Otherwise, we could never really trust him. Otherwise, we might feel that if we fell off the the wagon, so to speak, we'd somehow lose God's love. So it's almost like the world had to come to a point of of groaning for its own righteousness before it could receive relief. Sorry, for its own unrighteousness. You're not ready for the chemo until you really know yeah, yeah, yeah. That you don't have any options. Fascinating. Wow. 
Wow, Stephen. So, is there anything else we'd we'd say about the letter to Dionysus? Or is, uh, is it's readily available, you know, online. Yeah. And and things. So I uh, it's spelled D I O G N E T U S. Great. Just use Diognetus, you and you can find copies of the text. But it's real. It's very readable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very short. Again, it would take you ten minutes, but you'll really enjoy it. It's a it's it's a good read. Wonderful. Ancient ancient wisdom for the modern world. Well, thanks, Father Stephen. That's all the time we have left for this episode. And thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back in a couple weeks for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.